0: the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. Ten lepers approached, keeping their distance. They called out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet And thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. In biblical times, Jesus' biblical times, Israel as we know it today was divided into three territories. To the north, the territory that included the lake and Jesus' hometown was called Galilee. The south was called Judea, with its capital city of Jerusalem. And in between lay Samaria, the land of the mixed bloods. Mixed for 800 years, because it had once been inhabited by the ten northern tribes of Israel— decimated by the Assyrians in 722, uprooted those who survived, taken back to Assyria, raped, plundered, intermarried, sent back into Samaria, a mixed-blooded people who had nothing to do with Jews. We remember the woman at the well saying to Jesus, "'You're asking me for a drink? "'I can tell you're a Jew.'" I'm a Samaritan. We don't drink from the same utensils, and you have no cup. Let's look at the story. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and found himself at the border between Galilee and Samaria. When suddenly ten lepers cried out, though standing far back, according to Torah, Jesus, Master, have mercy, on us. We will learn a little bit later that nine of them probably were Jews. Jesus sent them to tell the priests. The Torah said if you ever feel you've been cleansed from leprosy, you must go and have a priest certify that fact before you can re enter your village and live again with your family. Yet one of them, the one who came back, was a Samaritan. How do you figure nine Jews living with a Samaritan? And I think the only conclusion you can come to is that their common problem had become more important than the differences they had once emphasized. I look back at last year's sermon this time, and I was saying to you, I have just seen my first long pink fire truck. Right down the street, the first pink police car I'd ever seen. Well, they're at it again. (laughs) Last Sunday afternoon, before I came back, Gail and I came back for the organ recital, I was watching professional football. I couldn't believe it. Coaches for the New York Jets, colors are green and white, were wearing pink caps. And when the television camera went up into the booth where the play-by-play guys were, bright pink ties. It continued yesterday. I was watching college, university football. I saw 300-pound tackles with pink shoelaces. I saw 225-pound running backs with pink ankle wraps, pink sweatbands. I saw one guy with those elastic sleeves they put on when their elbows are sort of beaten up, and both of them bright pink. Now I don't underestimate the significance of Susan B. Coleman's death. It was tragic, so young a victim of breast cancer. Nor do I belittle her sister's many efforts to make this cause known worldwide. The reason it's been successful is that one in every eight American women will have breast cancer. And that means every big 300 pound tackle has a grandmother, or a mother, or an aunt, or a sister who's had breast cancer. We all are in this together. We don't want any more women to die needlessly if we can find answers and so in this one cause we've all seen the problem as being more important than the things that sometimes divide us number two immediately Jesus just said to them go show yourself to the priest and they went what is Luke trying to tell us here when God tells you what to do do it just do it 18 months ago Gail and I intended to spend more time in New York City than we had ever spent at any one time before and so we asked some of you whom we know go to New York far more often than we do what do you like to do when you go to New York what do you like to see we particularly spent some time talking with Dr. Spencer Brown and Mary Wheeler they have a son daughter-in-law granddaughter in New York City and we know they go fairly often what do you like to see when you go to New York City And they told us, and we went. One of the things that I'd never heard much about before, should have but had not, was the Frick Collection. The Browns said, You want to see some of the most beautiful paintings? Go to the Frick Collection. And we went. There's a permanent collection upstairs, collected by a man and woman, very wealthy people, but then given to the city of New York so that anybody who comes there can see this magnificent collection. But in the lower area of the house, they often have traveling exhibits where they exchange paintings with other museums, other museums exchange with them. Right now, they have a special collection downstairs of drawings. These drawings are called From Mateña to Matisse. And one of those drawings is one by Michelangelo, one of his best-known called The Dream. You know that he was studying 500 years ago anatomy so that he could do realistic portrayals of Mary and the dead Jesus draped over her lap or of David Boy standing with all of his majesty. But in his drawings, you could see how he was learning about anatomy. And in this one called The Dream, as a A young man, beautifully musculatured. And then you see around him little drawings in chalk, 500 years old now, these little drawings of six deadly sins. Lust, greed, envy, sloth. Oh, but Michelangelo was a good Roman Catholic. He knew there aren't six deadly sins. There are seven. And the seventh was embodied in the young man. Because that seventh one that's not depicted in his six little drawings around him, pride. Pride, which Michelangelo was showing you, is self-centeredness, putting self in the center putting self in the center causes these other six to beckon you and you to respond. Ah, but it's called the dream. The young man is just awakening. And there is an angel up above him there, beautiful, the plumage on the wings, magnificent, with a trumpet, not directed toward his ear, not directed toward his heart, directed right between his eyes and his forehead because that's where the brain is. Michelangelo knew that. He's telling this young man, think about it. Think about it. As long as it's all about you, you're going to fall into these deadly traps. If you ever do what the Lord is telling you, And putting self out of the center, and letting God be the proper center, and letting others' genuine concern for others become the center. Well, if you're trying to take life, you're going to lose it, and if you're willing to give yours, you're going to find it. Number three. One came back and gave thanks. One. Where are the other nine? Jesus asked. But one came back. So it's gratitude, ingratitude. When I was in high school in the little East Texas town, I didn't read Shakespeare. But when I got to college, I read Shakespeare because I was pre-theology in undergraduate school and back then the seminaries were very demanding on what you had to have as prerequisites before you got there. So I had to have a lot of art appreciation and music appreciation, art history, music history. I had to have a lot of philosophy, including logic, psychology, a lot of history, a lot of English and writing, a lot of literature. I read King Lear. King Lear 400 years old when Shakespeare wrote this story about a king with three daughters ah Goneril, Regan Cordelia the two older ones constantly flatter their father so he thinks they love him when in fact they are looking every moment at some way to usurp his throne The youngest, Cordelia, really loves him. Enough to be honest about what she sees going on, and he thinks she's disloyal. So he clings to the two who wish him harm and pushes aside the one who really loves him, but tells him the truth. By the time he gets near the end of Act 1, he's begun to see into the heart of the oldest and he says that she should never ever bear a child because if she does she might discover what he's discovered well let me read you his words it may be so my lord here nature here dear goddess here suspend thy purpose if thou didst intend to make this creature fruitful into her womb convey sterility Dry up in her the organs of increase, and from her derogate body never spring a babe to honor her. If she must teem, create her child of spleen, that it may live and be a thwart, disnatured torment to her. Let it stamp wrinkles in her brow of youth, with cadent tears fret channels in her cheeks, turn all her mother's pains and benefits to laughter and contempt, that she too may feel how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child away, away. Number four, stand up, Jesus said to this Samaritan. Get up off your knees and go your way. Your faith has made you well, this translation says. The word is really the word for salvation. Salvation. Salvation is a word in Greek that has to do with wholeness. Wholeness. Both in this life and in the life to come. Dr. Fred Craddock says of this verse, you see, uh, ten, ten got healed and one got saved, he says. Ten got healed and one got saved. Who came in faith and gratitude. Dr. Bill Quick was pastor of our famed downtown church in Detroit, Michigan called Metropolitan United Methodist Church. He said that at one point one of the wealthy persons in that church wanted to give the church something of significance. They started shopping around and discovered a painting of John Wesley at Aldersgate Street the night his heart was strangely warmed. He said it was wonderfully done and this donor purchased it for the church. We were getting ready to unveil this beautiful painting on a Sunday morning, letting everyone see. When Dr. Quick said I decided to show it to the staff on Friday before. Our clergy knew about this story. Some of our housekeeping crew didn't really know that story. So I unveiled the painting, and then I told them. John and Charles Wesley grew up in a big family at a little nowhere place called Epworth. Their mother was a devout woman who wanted very much for her children to be educated. The father was pastor of one little Anglican church for 38 years, and it is really tiny. We have Sunday school classes bigger than could fit into that little church where Samuel Wesley pastored all those years. Well, they saved their money. There were no public schools in those days, and they sent two of the boys, John and Charles, down to London to go to preparatory school. They did very well and went from there on to Oxford University, where both were graduated and became priests in the Anglican Church. As very young men, they decided to seek a new experience, come to America, to the colony of Georgia. Well, it wasn't what they expected. These two young Oxford Duns, these two priests in the Anglican Church, when these frontiersmen didn't come to church every Sunday, John got all upset about that and said if they didn't come the Sunday before communion, then they couldn't take communion without special confession, which these folks didn't like. They fell in love with a, an 18 year old, but when she wasn't interested in him, The next Sunday as he was serving communion, he went round her and didn't serve her. The big problem with that was her daddy was the sheriff, and he threatened to kill him. So these two brothers got on a ship and started back to England. (laughs) Uh, True, they were in Georgia for about 18 months, and on the way back across the Atlantic, a terrible hurricane engulfed this tiny little ship, and they were afraid they were going to die. Finally, they decided this heaving, pitching up on deck was killing them, so they went down below just to wait until they died. And down in the deepest hold of the ship, a tiny little group of Moravian Christians singing quietly and praying. storm passed. These two brothers did not forget what they had experienced. They wanted what the Moravians had, and they started looking for it. And after a time, Charles said to his brother, John, I had this most wonderful experience at church yesterday, John. I tell you, it was a strange warming of the heart. John said, I want that. I want that. And later that afternoon, he went to St. Paul's Magnificent Cathedral, the Sir Christopher Wren Building. It was even song. The little boy's choir was singing the De Profundis from the Psalms. Out of the depths we cry unto thee, O Lord, Lord, hear our cries. Be attentive to the voice of our supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there's always forgiveness with you, that you may be praised and feared. But it didn't happen. So later that evening, he walked a short distance. Gail and I walked from St. Paul's to Aldersgate Street. You can still do it. Went to a little prayer meeting there. About a quarter past nine, the head of the Moravian group was reading from Martin Luther's preface to Paul's letter to the Romans, written 200 years before the Wesleys came along. And he said, suddenly, my heart was strangely warmed, an assurance given me that my sins, even mine, had been forgiven, and I was made whole. Dr. Quick had told the story, and he said he started to walk away when he saw one of the maids walk over very close to the painting and quietly whisper, Lord, do it one more time.